My name is Vinny Hanke. I'm the lead pastor at Valley Life Community Church in Meridian, Idaho. And through the miracle and gift of technology, I'm very excited to be preaching with you today, this morning. Uh, If you are gathered online, wherever you are, whether you're in Southern California or in Idaho or across the globe, we're glad that you're joining us here this morning. And we believe that God has you here on purpose to hear this passage with the people gathered around you, even inside your home, because he has a purpose for you this morning. If you've been with us for quite a while at Generations, you know that we're in the midst of a series called Isaiah, Our God Saves, through the book of Isaiah. Last week, Pastor Jeff talked about chapter 63 and 64. I'll be in chapter 65 right now, so if you don't have your Bible near you, you can grab that. And one of the exciting things about chapter 65 is that it is so chock full of God's promises that it's not a passage I feel like I can tackle alone. So today, you're going to get a twofer. That's right, uh, one sermon, two pastors, just for you because we love you. Uh, My good friend Brandon Torres is going to pick up at verse 17 this morning and finish the chapter. If you remember him, he too was an elder and servant at Generations and is excited to bring the word for you. Well, let's not wait any longer, shall we? Let's jump in. So if you have your Bible, Isaiah chapter 65, I'm going to read the first few verses. If you're at home, I'm going to invite you to do what we do here in Idaho, what we would do normally if we were in person, and that's to stand for the reading of the Word. Uh, We stand when we read God's Word because we're acknowledging that what we're reading is not uh, something from me or something from us, but it's something from God that He has delivered to us by the power of the Spirit. We're going to ask Him this morning to illuminate our minds, to change our hearts, and to ultimately transform our lives. That's the point of preaching. It's the point of the church. It's it's why we're here is to see God break through with his kingdom into the kingdom of darkness. And he does that through the proclamation of his word, the good news about Jesus Christ. So if you're standing with me, I hope you are by now. That was a really long intro. I'm going to pick up Isaiah chapter 65, verses 1 and 2, and then I'll pray. Hear the word of the Lord, church. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me, I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. This is the word of the Lord, church. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for the gift of technology that allows me to deliver your word to a people at a different time and in a different place than I am currently. And so, God, we pray that you would bridge the gap that that technology creates and you would allow by your spirit to use the words that I would speak to illuminate the minds of your people, to change their hearts by your spirit, and that ultimately lives would be transformed because we as Christians gathered under the preaching of your word. God, we thank you for Isaiah. We thank you for the testimony of your power, your grace, and your salvation that it has been to Generations Church. And as we near the conclusion of it, God, we pray that you would continue to use it in our lives beyond just the completion of a sermon series, but we would look to the book and the text of Isaiah and acknowledge that you are a God who saves. Would you help us to be people who proclaim that salvation with every word we speak, with every act we perform, God, and with every conviction of our heart. We pray these things by your spirit, to your glory, and for our good through Christ. Amen. So again, The book of Isaiah is a book that was written by Isaiah as he is inspired by God through the Holy Spirit, and it focuses on his ministry to the people of Israel before their exile and judgment, in their exile and judgment, and then Isaiah spends the last 10 chapters making promises about what life is going to be like after their exile and judgment, and that's where we find ourselves here. 
right when Isaiah is making promises to the people of God and answering what has been a, a prayer from Isaiah and the people to God in the midst of their exile. What is God going to say to a people who have come under judgment for their own rebellion against God's word, will, and ways? God's going to answer the prayers that were prayed in 63 and in 64 here in Isaiah 65. And so we pick up at verse 1 when it says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. When we pick up in Isaiah 65, we are reading God's answer to the prayers of his people. Here's my main idea today, that in the midst of a breaking and broken world, we find strength and hope in the fact that God is still saving people. Isaiah wants to change the despairing thoughts of a people and remind them that God is not far away, that God is not remote, he is not uninvolved, but he wants to instill them confidence that God has a desire to intervene in the lives of his people and to save them and rescue them, even those who may not be looking for them. And perhaps that's you this morning. Perhaps you stumbled upon this live stream this morning. You're not sure why it scrolled up in your Facebook feed, but it did. You're here, I'm here, God is here, and he's ready to rescue and save. Hear from his own mouth when he cries out to the people of Israel, here I am. As we read verse 1, can we just acknowledge that God is the worst hide-and-go-seek player ever? Can we just acknowledge that? That God is so persistent in his approach that he is willing to pursue people who aren't even looking for him. God is breaking in with good news to the people of Israel, to people who have their mind closed off, their heart closed off, and their, their life turned away, walking in disobedience to God. God is there pursuing them. Maybe that's your story. Maybe God rescued you. Maybe God broke into your life with the good news of Jesus Christ at a moment when you were unaware. You weren't looking for God. You weren't aware that he was present. But God still broke into your life and rescued you. God is persistent. In fact, he is a person who continues to call people that are outside the normal realm of salvation. That's what he's alluding to here in verse 1 when he says that he is seeking and crying out, here I am, to a nation that was not called by his name. He's referring to those who are outside of the nation of Israel. Those who are outside of ethnic Israel, God is in the pursuit of and rescuing and saving. But God has done this throughout the Old Testament already. He, he just continued to be who he is when it comes to salvation. We have Old Testament examples of Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho, who was a non-Israelite whom God chose and rescued and saved. And we have uh, Ruth, the Moabite, who was, again, outside the nation of Israel, whom God chose, selected, and saved and grafted into the family. Those two women, in fact, are in the godly line that traces all the way to the Savior, Jesus Christ. See, God does not wait for us to show interest in him. He's the one who makes the first move. This is the way of God in salvation. It's the way God saves. He initiates. He moves first. He doesn't require a spiritual pedigree or a spiritual talent, and I hope and pray that that's good news for you today. If you're not a Christian and you're watching this, God is not waiting for you to get your act cleaned up. He is crying out to you through the gospel of Jesus Christ, here I am. I have accomplished the way, and I'm calling you to myself. But you don't have to trust my word. Listen to Romans chapter 9, verse 16, when it says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion. Speaking of salvation. It depends not on human will or exertion, 
but on God who has mercy. You don't need to be religious. In fact, we're going to read here in chapter 65 of Isaiah that religion can actually be the problem that gets in our way between us and God. Listen to verse 2. God says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. Verse 3 continues, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day. Now what is God talking about? What kind of chaos anti-bacon campaign is this that God seems to be on? Let's first begin with this. God is spreading out his hands. God is pleading, dare I say, even patiently awaiting, giving everyone ample opportunity to turn and repent and come to him. But with some people, it's a wasted effort. Why? The problem is the human mind. The ESV translates it here that people are following their own devices. What does Isaiah mean by devices? He then goes on to allude to it through the rest of these verses in 3 through 5. These are the structures and religious practices that people have created in Isaiah's day to manage their own self-salvation projects. Listen, these are people who provoke God continually. Why? Because they sacrifice in gardens, they make offerings on bricks, they sit in tombs, they spend the night in secret places, and they eat pig's flesh and the broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. What, what are all these things that God is describing through Isaiah? These are all the false religion, idol worship practices of Isaiah's day. And what God says, these are in a, an affront to his face. The God who cries out, here I am, does not need us to create little salvation practices. Little things that create a, a destination of heaven in our own mind, and then we create our own way to get there that denies the grace and mercy of God. It says, God, don't, don't you worry, I've got this. I can handle it. I can work my way back to you. That is an affront to God. And what he says is smoke in his nostrils, a fire of judgment and wrath that burns up all day because we reject his grace and mercy and try to earn our way there. We refuse the good news of the gospel of God that he has come to us, that the creator has condescended to the creation. This is counterintuitive and ultimately threatening to our pride because it requires us to admit that we have a need, that we can't meet ourselves. And so we create all these little self-salvation projects. In Isaiah's day, it was sitting in the tomb overnight. It was making an offering in a garden. It was making a sacrifice on a set of bricks. It was drinking and eating pig's flesh and pig's blood. We trade this beautiful truth that salvation is dependent wholly upon God's grace for a system of religion that we can manage. And anytime we place an additional work, an additional activity, an additional belief, an additional practice, an additional social system, and we make it mandatory to get close to or to prove our connection to God, we have abandoned the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says that it is an entirety work of God and his grace and mercy bestowed upon us. 
And when we do that, it becomes offensive, a provocation of God. When we trade the beautiful gift of his mercy for our own little efforts to try to get God to like us and love us. Let me just break you free of that problem today. God loves you and has demonstrated his love for you through Jesus Christ, through the cross. When God bestowed upon him all of your sin and brokenness and took his righteousness and bestowed it all upon you, thereby demonstrating his love for you. So stop trying to earn it. Stop doing the equivalent of spending the night in the tomb. Stop doing the equivalent of making sacrifices in the garden. Stop doing whatever you think you're trying to do to earn God's favor. Because when you do, it's offensive to God. When you do, you're trading the beautiful for the ugly. You know, my wife, she is a fantastic baker, and one of her favorite things to do is she makes uh, banana bread. My daughter has a fantastic imagination, and one of the things she loves to do is play in the mud. I hope you can see where I'm going. So my wife will spend the time in the kitchen to make this beautiful banana bread, this beautiful loaf of banana bread. It's fantastic, a little, ball, a little salt, a little butter, warmed up in the market. It's fantastic. My daughter will make these fantastic mud pies where she will spend minutes working on this mud pie to bring it and present it to me as a gift. Here, Dad, try my mud pie. Here's what I'm not going to do, though. I'm not going to trade my wife's banana bread for my daughter's mud pie. But you know what we do when we work on our self-salvation project? We're trading exactly that. We're trading God's beautiful gift of banana bread in Jesus Christ for an ugly mud pie of our own creation and calling it tasty. This is broken. It's broken. The people of Isaiah's time, that's exactly what they've done. And then notice the fruit that it produces. When we do this, we don't become more humble, more obedient, more righteous. Listen to verse 5. Excuse me, verse 4. No, it is verse 5. Verse 5 says, The people say, Keep it to yourself. Do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. You know what happens when we work on our self-salvation projects? We, we begin to believe that we can save ourselves. We begin to believe that we are truly righteous. But hey, do you know how many Bible studies I'm at? Do you know how many online devotionals I'm reading right now? Do you know how many blogs I'm writing right now? Do you know how much time I'm spending in prayer? Do you know how much I'm doing, how much I'm doing? How much? You know what the problem is? All of that produces a pride that is self-righteous, that is like a fire in God's nostrils, that, that burns him up, that we would trade his efforts of divine grace and mercy and giving up his son to the cross for our own efforts to try to rescue ourselves. That never works out. It never works out. Verse 6, here's God's response. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. What does God say in verse six and seven? That there will become a day when those who are working on their self-salvation projects, those who reject the grace and mercy of God, will receive judgment. That God will judge them and will punishment for the rejection of his grace and mercy. That day is coming. But here's the good news, that day's not here yet. If you're listening and watching it, this, that day has not come yet. And so God is bestowing upon you another opportunity where he extends his hands toward you and says, here I am, 
come to me, reject that old nasty mud pie, and come to me and experience the grace and mercy of my son Jesus Christ. That's what happens in verse 8. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. What God's saying is here, uh, when wine was made, right, you harvest the grapes. Well, sometimes there might be a few rotten grapes inside of it, mixed in the, mixed, in the midst of it. And what God is saying is the people are crying out and say, God, there are some who are rejecting you, but there are some who present who are not rejecting you. And so God says, okay, I hear that, and I will remove, I will separate out those who reject me, and I will receive those who receive me. Verse 9, God continues this theme. He says, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down, for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny... I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. Let me say that again. I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. Friends, God is calling you right now. He's calling you right now. Will you answer the call? Because if you choose to reject it, if you choose to cast aside, if you choose to be a captive of your own devices and say, no, that can't be true, no, it, it's too good, or no, God doesn't, whatever you, mental device you put in the way of the grace and mercy of God today, your destiny is clear. God is destining you for the sword, my friends. For the day when his wrath will be clear and his judgment known, when every eye will see, when every tongue will confess, when every knee will bow, he is Lord. So the question becomes, not whether you're going to see it, whether you're going to speak it, or whether you're going to bow before it, but will you do so in humility and gratitude or under fear and judgment in God's wrath? That's what's painted here in verses 9 through 12, is the judgment and blessing of God, is the salvation of God and the judgment of God. When the judgment of God that once rested upon us was now cast upon Jesus, we now receive blessing. God refers to an interesting place here in these verses as he answers Isaiah. He refers to the Valley of Achor. If you know your Old Testament, the Valley of Achor was a place where Achan received the judgment of God. It's a place where he disobeyed God directly. As the people were conquering the promised land, God told them to reserve some things for himself and to keep none of it for themselves. Achan got a little greedy and decided to keep some of the things that God had said to set aside for the house of worship for himself. This resulted in him being stoned to death under the judgment of God. And what God says here in Isaiah 65 is that that place of judgment where Achan was put to death will now become a place of rest and salvation because this is the natural pattern of God, turning judgment into salvation. Consider the cross, the Roman instrument of execution and death. There, God took an instrument of judgment and turned it into an instrument of salvation. Why do we wear crosses around our neck as Christians? Why do we put them on t-shirts and bumper stickers and hang them in our places of worship? Because that which was once a symbol of judgment for us has become a symbol of salvation. And that's what God promises here for those in Isaiah 65 who will hear his call and answer it. It will become a place of beauty and restoration for you. What once was a place of judgment 
reminds me of my in-law's home back in Hesperia in California. My father-in-law had a rust garden. Yeah, I said that right, rust garden. Um, this was the high desert after all. Uh, but one of the things that always struck me in the rust garden was Ron had taken an old toilet and placed it in his rust garden. It began to rust over and he turned it into a planter and he would plant the most beautiful flowers. And there, there was this, this weird... Uh, dichotomy with this, this place of death, this toilet that was rusted over, yet it had given birth to these beautiful flowers every spring. That's the cross for us. It's the place of death that gives birth to beautiful life for us as Christians. And this life that we're promised in Jesus Christ, God is saying, here I am, it's yours. Receive the grace and mercy that's yours in Jesus Christ. And what awaits us is a beautiful picture of mercy and salvation forever and ever. This is the work of God. We know that tomorrow is not guaranteed, my friends. That things once counted on for normalcy in the midst of this pandemic are gone. It is only Christ, it is only Christ, it is only Christ that will be our anchor in all places and in all times. And if you will place your trust and hope upon him right now, Brandon's going to come forward and he's going to describe what awaits you in the next life. All right, well, hey, generations. I feel like we need to do like the Wayne's World, like, de-loop, 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 and, like transition one to the other. But uh, my man Vinny just brought some ridiculous truth from Isaiah. And we're going to skip ahead real quick to verse 17. What he was talking about is all of the lead up to this second half. God was talking to those people through Isaiah about what would happen if things were left onto their own. But now here he gives this beautiful promise of what he is doing, what he is working into completion for those people who are chosen and those whom he loves. Starts in verse 17. He says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or even come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever." In that which I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy for her people, excuse me, to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. This beautiful promise of what God plans to create, and it does this really cool thing where he hearkens all the way back to the beginning of the creation in Genesis and also forward to the promise of things to come in Revelation at the end. Some scholars believe that they look at these passages and they, they think that the speaking of the restored Jerusalem is this new creation, while other scholars believe that this is talking about the second coming, the next coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter writes about this in 2 Peter and also John in his exile when he writes to Revelation uh, in 21, that this is of the second coming of Christ and the blessings of the new covenant that are about to come in the Messiah. This same Hebrew word that he uses here to create this new heaven and new earth is the same word in Hebrew that God uses in Genesis chapter 1, where it talks about he creates everything, ex nihilo, from nothing, where God, in only the way that he can, can speak into nothingness, into the void, and then create from there. He talks about this new uh, thing that he's going to make. A future where the former things, all of the pain and the struggle and all the sorrow that we deal with now, won't even be a memory 
it won't even come to mind. You, you get into conversations with people sometimes talking about, oh, won't it be cool in heaven when we can, you know, look back on those things? It's not even going to be in your memory. Everything about the new creation that God is going to bring about is so all-consuming that none of those pain or struggle issues are even going to be possible to think about. This is to create a joy that will last for all of eternity, as he says, to rejoice forever in that which I create. I've heard it said before that we aren't bodies that have a soul, but rather we are souls that are living in a body. All of us are eternal creatures, and we're going to spend eternity one way or the other, either with or without God. And so this is getting to the heart of what he's talking about here. The prophet Isaiah is bringing this reality to bear upon the people that he's preaching to and he's prophesying for. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, and if you haven't read it, I highly recommend you read it. Uh, it says this. Lewis writes, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. I must make it the main object of my life then, to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. He also talks about this in another book, uh, Reflections on the Psalms, and this really cool analogy where he says, it would be the same as, uh, it is as strange as if a fish were repeatedly surprised at the wetness of water. And that would be strange indeed, unless, of course, that fish were destined to become one day a land animal. There's all these other things in our existence as human beings that we marvel at, the novelty of the passage of time and how fast that goes by. And it seems to go faster as you get older. Why that would be a strange thing to us unless we were bound for a timeless existence. It's that same kind of analogy as why a fish would wonder at the wetness of water. This imagery is also given to us in this new creation that we see here in Isaiah in Revelation 21. If you guys want to flip there, it's almost all the way at the back. But this imagery that he gives of this new creation is in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. He says this. This is John writing. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Sound familiar? For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, what? coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. There's that same word again, that creating. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Isaiah was prophesying the very promises 
of Jesus to those people that he would be coming to rescue. Jesus hadn't even happened yet. This is hundreds of years before the incarnate Christ has even come. And yet here's Isaiah giving these words to these people, telling them about the future that God has designed. This wasn't a surprise. This wasn't something that caught God off guard. This was a design from the beginning using the kind of verbiage that we see all the way back in Genesis in the creation account, promising them a future forward of a new creation that God would make. He goes on to talk about this in even more detail, starting in verse 20. He says, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit, and they shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. This is all about God's righteous judgment on sin and death being removed from among his people. This won't even be a thing anymore. Premature death, whether it's in infants or, or any people who have not yet lived a fruitful life, as well as what you see happen with Israel over and over again throughout their history. God's chosen people, they're brought to a land of promise only to walk in a way, like Vinny was talking about, that is a, an offense, an affront to God when they willingly rebel and stray away, that God removes them from that place and allows others to come and live in the homes that they've built, to eat the fruits of the vineyards that they had planted, that they would receive the spoils of the things that God had given to them as a gift. And God is saying in this moment that that will not happen in this new creation. All of those things that were gifted to his people will remain theirs. You can look back into uh, in Amos. There's some, some reference to this as well. Uh, in reality, this is God's judgment on sin. He says, therefore, because you trample on the poor, in Amos, chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, therefore, because you trample on the poor, you exact taxes of gain from him. You have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. He says, you have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many of your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. The children of Israel were driven from their homes because of sin. And others were allowed to enjoy the fruits of their orchards and vineyards. All you have to do is look at judges and there's this huge litany of this happening over and over and over again. Isaiah also uses the imagery of a tree in this passage, which is pretty spectacular. If you think about how long trees live, and he's referencing the lives of these people to the days of a tree, right? Trees can live for thousands of years. It's another use of like hyperbole in this prophetic language where he's giving them an idea of this juxtaposition of, of lives being ended in infancy in comparison to a long and fruitful life of a tree. This also goes back to kind of this imagery that we see in other parts of the Bible where uh, the life of man is, is likened to grass, which is here today and gone tomorrow or thrown into a furnace. It says uh, in, I think it's in Psalms, 
It says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place is known no more. And then you put that against the imagery of Psalm 1, where it talks about a tree uh, next to streams of water. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The only way this kind of existence is even possible to begin with is because of the work of Christ in fulfilling the terms of the law and meriting or earning its blessing for himself as well as for those who are later to be found in him. It goes on in verse 23 in Isaiah 65. He keeps painting this picture. He says, they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. God's promise of a final and lasting peace brought about and secured by himself. Like Vinny was saying, this isn't about any kind of a project of self-righteousness that we might do ourselves. This is no kind of bootstrapping effort of our own to live upright or moral or righteous lives because we can't. We're ill-equipped. It's completely outside of our grasp in our current situation. Whether or not you know Jesus, this is the reality of our existence as humans. And there's a really interesting bit in here that he writes about when Isaiah says that there shall be offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. This runs completely counter to the reality that we find ourselves in now, being children of Adam and descendants of his, and then receiving the curse of Adam. We're born into this world underneath that curse. We're broken. We have no other way about it. There's nothing that we can do to get out from underneath this. And what God is saying is the complete opposite of that, that they shall be offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Those who are blessed by God, they're going to continue on and on in that same way, inheriting that blessing the way that we inherit the curse from Adam now. In 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he says this, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, being Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, namely you and I. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. That's the offer of God, that we can become like Jesus in that that we can be born again anew 
not as of dust as from Adam, but as of spirit in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say in verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In Romans chapter 5, he says some cool stuff. And some of these I print out and some of them I like to read because I like to have a Bible in my hands. Wink, wink. It's a good habit to get into. Uh, Chapter 5 in Romans, verses 12 through 21. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Talking again about Jesus. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following after many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned throughout that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, or because of all of that, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. This beautiful picture is being painted, and Isaiah, who has never met Jesus, doesn't know anything about it, is already speaking these words forward in time, even though he didn't realize it, and these people didn't either. The imagery of God saying, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Uh, the, f- the first thing that comes into my mind is the story in Luke 15. It's the prodigal son when he's coming back. And it says, while he was yet a long way off, the father saw him. And he picked up his garment and he ran to his son. And before his son could say a word, he threw himself on him and he hugged him and he kissed him. God isn't waiting on us to clean ourselves up and get our act together in order to forgive us. While we were yet sinners, enemies of God, in open rebellion to his face, while that was happening, Jesus died for us. This is the father going to the son who had rebelled and walked away willingly and first loving him and first forgiving him and first restoring him. This is not about us. This is not about what we do. This is about what God has chosen to do for us because of his great love for us. These other pictures that we see here 
the, the wolf and the lamb grazing together. This runs all the way back in Isaiah to chapter 11, right? In verses 6 through 7, it talks about this exact thing happening, the wolf and the lamb grazing together. This isn't a prophecy so much about animals, but this is about the weak preying on the, or the strong preying on the weak, right? We see this in our lives constantly. There's this violence that happens, right? Those who can, because of, of, of physical strength or power position, take advantage of and prey upon those who are weaker. In this imagery, he's saying that those two people are going to graze together. They're going to live in peace together because there will be no more need for violence or death or any of those things, right? The lion shall eat straw like an ox. All of these things, there's going to be no more need for sin and death. And that goes all the way back to the beginning in Genesis also, right? God told Adam and Eve, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die, right? They ate of it, but did they die? No. But what happened? Even in that moment, that was the first instance of God showing substitutionary grace for Adam and Eve. If you read, it says that he clothed them in animal skins. Where did those skins come from? The animals were killed. Their lives were sacrificed as an atonement, that death was still the price of sin, but it wasn't Adam and Eve's death. It was a substitution that was paid for their sin so that they could be covered, literally, physically, by those animal skins. Why? What was the purpose? So that they could continue in relationship with God. So that physically, literally, their shame, their nakedness would be covered by God's provision for them at the expense of the death of another so that they could restore that relationship and walk together in the garden as they had. This whole book, from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, starts in a garden, ends in a garden. It's all about Jesus. On every page, every line, it all points to him, whether forwards or backwards, it doesn't matter. This is one large, perfect story of Jesus coming and paying for our open rebellion and sin and shame, to cover it with his righteousness, to restore our relationship to the God that we left and walked away. And here in this passage where Isaiah is talking about this promise of this new creation, this new life, this new existence, that's all gone. He's making all things new. The next line says, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. He's fulfilling the promise of the, the prophecy in Genesis where he tells Satan, the serpent, that you will eat the dust, shall be your food. All of these things are coming together now, right? God then promises the finality of this prophecy with the end of pain and destruction with those little words right there at the end says the Lord. We know that this promise is true and our hope is secure, not because of our faithfulness, not because of what we do to uphold our end of this, but because of the faithfulness of the one who makes the promise. It's because the Lord says so. Isaiah gives this, this painting, this dichotomy, this dual picture here of of, of Cursing and blessing, right? We see this throughout all of Scripture. Heaven, it said, is, is basically eternal souls 
that long for God, getting what they want. And hell is simply eternal souls who don't want to have anything to do with God, getting what they want, being separated from him. If we're looking at heaven as some kind of a fire insurance, as an escape route from punishment or from pain, you're going to be just as miserable there as you would be here. Because it's, it's not streets of gold, it's not a mansion, it's not crowns, it's not all of these things in this flowery poetic imagery that we see in Scripture. The prize in heaven is Jesus. If you keep reading in Revelation 21, it says in verse 22, this is John speaking again, he says, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty. And the Lamb, it's Jesus. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. There's no sun or moon in heaven because Jesus is literally the light that shines on everything. All of our existence forever and ever forward into eternity is going to be spent praising and worshiping him. So if you can't get your head around that idea now, what in the world are we looking forward to? Your enjoyment of God should begin now. Our life with Jesus is just that. This is the beginnings of the rehearsal for an eternity forever forward, where that's how we spend every minute of every day from here to forever. And that doesn't start after you die. That starts today. Like Vinny was saying, if this is something new to you, you've never heard this before, this is an opportunity for you to have all of that, that picture that Isaiah is painting, right? No more sin, no more shame, no more death. We get to start to step foot towards that future now. It must begin now. Entering into Christ requires nothing but us bringing our needs to him. He's the one who will recreate you, not you. The gospel says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone away. Behold, the new has come. If you are in Christ, God has not just patched you up or put band-aids on your old self. He is making you completely new. And you will enjoy God forever in this endless newness. If you want to experience that kind of newness, that kind of recreation, if you want your life to be aimed toward that kind of a future, if you want to experience that kind of love and a removal of shame and guilt, to be reconciled to a God who created you and loves you more than you could ever understand, today is your day. It's really simple. You have to believe two things and do one thing. The belief part is easy, right? You just have to ask yourself honestly and admit that your heart is, is fickle, right? And if you were left to your own devices or if you were trying to just kind of white knuckle and muscle through and do it yourself, that you can't. It's just not possible. 
You have to understand and accept the fact that we are wholly dependent on God to be rescued. This is a confession of our dependence on God, an acceptance that we do sin and rebel against him openly and knowingly, and that there's no hope apart from him to be saved from that. The second thing you have to believe is in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, paying for that, that his being raised from the dead by God on that third day is the seal that's a guarantee of this being real and that his promises are faithful to you as they were in everything else in history and throughout all of scripture. And then comes the doing, the one thing you must do. You have to commit yourself to him. You have to put action behind your belief. You can't just sit there on the couch and say that, yeah, I believe that, that's cool. That belief has to actually be played out in reality in your life. You have to start taking steps to give up those things that you've been holding on to so tightly that you think are going to be your means of getting good, whatever that looks like, and letting that go and giving it to him and saying, Jesus, help me. I want to follow you. I want to have my life look more and more like you. You guys, this is not just the point of what Isaiah is laying out here, but this is the point of this entire book. Like I said, in every verse and every page, that's what this is pointing to, that we've wandered away and Jesus has come to rescue us from ourselves and to bring us back to our Father who loves us. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for your words that through ridiculous intervention in human history, through thousands and thousands of years, that we still have these words of yours recorded and carefully transmitted throughout all of the ages to get us to the place where we are now. We don't have to wonder what your heart is. We don't have to try and imagine what you might ask or want from us. We don't need to try to, to, to figure out or parse through all of our existence to find how you would want us to live. We have your very words spoken through your prophets and through your own mouth. The words of Jesus. God, I pray that as your people that you would stir in our hearts a love and a desire for your words. That we would crave and, and draw ourselves to them more and more. And God, if we have any, any bit of struggle or rebellion left in us, God, that we would give that to you. Whatever's still lurking inside, that, that pride, that, that those things that we want to hold on to, Father, would you help take them away? Help us to surrender and admit our position and to take that banana bread, <laughs> that gift, that beautiful, beautiful gift that you give to leave our mud pies behind and to live a life in your light and in your love and in relationship with you. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we can pray. Amen. Love you, generations. God bless you guys.